Life in America can be seen through several lenses, each offering its own perspective on day-to-day life. In this episode of Humans Now and Then, I speak to Greg Rodersheimer, the owner of Rody Consulting Group and the host of the Suburban Folk Podcast, about his work in healthcare, his views on suburban life, and about one of his favorite topics, finance. In my day-to-day life, when I'll talk about things like 401ks, IRAs, all that kind of stuff, people just sort of look at me like I'm crazy. And why would they want to talk about that? And I I look the other way when people will just say they sort of plug and play their 401k. Yeah, it's going into this thing. And I don't really ever look at it. And I'm like, oh, you're kidding me. So I like to talk about the personal finance. Again, everybody has to be able to deal with it uh, in one way or another. So it's a universal topic. Greg takes us on a journey by exploring topics relating to his business and healthcare, but also his interest in finance, well-being, and home improvement. So, ready to take a deep dive into suburban life? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Greg Rodersheimer, thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You bet. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you? Sure. My day job is in healthcare, specifically managed care. I've been in this industry for 15 years, really right out of college. I started in commercial insurance. So what people would think of, you get hired, you are offered your benefits, and somebody is administering those. That was my initial role, was administering those kinds of benefits. From there, I started to gradually get into government programs. What that means is Medicare at the federal level, meaning generally speaking for older adults, and then also started to do Medicaid, which is state-by-state based, generally tends to be need-based based on your finances. And in particular, when the Affordable Care Act got enacted, most people thought of the exchanges and for people that need the individual options because they didn't have anything through their employers. There were also changes to those Medicare, Medicaid programs that were very much more specific. So I got into those particular programs and startups, figuring out how they were going to run a lot in the reporting world. And that's where I've lived in the industry itself is I started in operations. So front end customer service, data entry kind of teams. And for anybody that's in that world knows that sometimes it's hard to get resources for analytics or technical. So I started to learn it myself. And it actually ended up being a very good thing for where I find myself today. You hear the word big data for a lot of different industries, especially in healthcare. So the more that I got into being my own analyst, I shifted to be almost like a liaison, still speaking the language for the clinical people and for the operations customer service people, but also bridging the gap for those analytical and technical resources so that when new enhancements need to come up or we do need to do some data mining, I can help be the interpreter for those two different areas that are around. So um, that's, that's really what I've been doing with my day job. I also, using that same background, have started to do some consulting for other industries um, that have a similar issue in non-technical people need to be able to speak the language of technical people so that they can get KPIs or new workflows to make their process as efficient as it can be. 
Uh, and then I think we're also going to talk about, I am also hosting my own podcast called Suburban Folk, where I like to bring on people that are experts in finance, travel, health and fitness. Also like to talk about parenting and getting into home improvement. I know I need a lot of help with that one. So I don't offer a lot <laughs> in that world, but I love bringing some people on that can help me out uh, in ways to get things done. And of course, the, where we find ourselves right now, uh, as cost efficiently as possible, while money may be a little bit tight based on what we're seeing in the economy right now. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Home improvement is is a journey. It's a journey towards a destination that you may reach in the future. <laughs> that is my cycle. Like I start a project and within a day, I'm like, this was a bad idea. What am I doing? <laughs> and, and, and eventually I get through it. Absolutely. And I was going to say, I had a couple of gallons of paint that are still sitting waiting to get on the wall. <laughs> so I can relate yeah, to that. Exactly. So, hey, I, you know, it's interesting. Um, you and I actually have a, a similar background. So I used to work in Medicaid managed care services. That was uh, at the beginning of my career. Mm -hmm. This was pre-Obamacare. So this was quite some time ago. But yeah, I had that background as well. So a lot of things that you said I related to very highly, especially, you know, the fact that resources are low and you have to become extremely creative in how you solve problems. And I've got to say, I am actually very thankful for that experience in my background because it forced me to learn a lot and be very flexible in how I work. It's, it is a complicated world. And one of the jokes that I started to tell with the combined Medicare and Medicaid programs is the only thing worse than one government program as far as regulation is two of them combined. <laughs> so oh <laughs> the amount of rules and regulations you have to follow is pretty daunting. Yes. And the one thing that made me feel better was when the state had to start processing federal data in the same way that I had already been used to with things like Medicare Advantage, they were struggling uh, for a while in some of the markets that I was in. And I'm like, hey, at least it wasn't just us right, on the carrier side that was having trouble with these data files and, and interpretation. So it's not easy. That's for sure. It is not easy. Yeah, we could probably talk all day about the complexities of managed care services here in the United States and the healthcare system in general. And maybe some of that we'll weave in because mm -hmm. I think obviously the healthcare system is critical in this moment in time when we're dealing with a pandemic. There have been stories from Detroit. There have been stories from California and Washington of very taxing burdens being placed on local and even federal healthcare systems. What are your thoughts about what we learn from this experience moving forward with your experience in healthcare? Yeah, you're right. I think there's going to be a lot of changes. And I think just like with what we've been seeing, they will be fluid. The first iterations that we might see aren't necessarily what we're going to see long term. And actually, a quick example of that, how my company has been involved, a lot of what we do is home health visits and completing assessments with the idea that you hear stories where somebody might go see their primary care physician, and then maybe they're going to a different specialist. And those people aren't necessarily talking to each other. And it also varies how involved in someone's own health they are. So the idea is having this person come into the home, bring all those resources together, make sure that you don't have a major issue, like let's say different prescriptions that were prescribed that they don't know 
might have a, a bad effect and the people that prescribed them have no idea that there's somebody else in the picture, that kind of stuff. So at first, that seems like somewhere we would want to go and social distancing. Yeah, that's going to make sure people don't have to come out of their home. However, the other side of that, of course, is do you really want to introduce another person from the general public, especially who has been seeing patient over patient over patient and maybe bringing something into your house in the near term? That is absolutely not going to work. And we have had to have a shift in that model um, to doing more virtual assessments and figuring out what you can do over the phone. And of course, telehealth being something else. That's not necessarily what um, my company does day over day, but my wife actually is a physician. So I think we are going to see a significant uptick in using technology for things like telehealth when it is appropriate. Obviously, there are certain things that can't be done that way. But when we can, let's use that resource that might even help from a capacity standpoint that um, you don't have people having to do their commute or take away friction points for people to actually go to those types of appointments, we would see an uptick there. One other thing that I've noticed that, again, our company has actually offered to certain businesses that may become more the norm is monitoring the employees as they're coming in the door. You know, we're, we're starting to hear suggestions of, A, when is it going to be that we're safe to do things like big concerts or sporting events? Right. And there have been suggestions that it may never be quite the same that along with, let's say, a pat down to make sure you don't have anything that you're not supposed to bring in already, you may get the check of your temperature before they let you into something like that. And um, already we have started to implement some of that for essential businesses that are trying to make it as safe as possible for the employees coming in. So I think those are some of the things that we're going to see in the future. My hope is maybe putting that over top of things that were already going on up into this point, meaning I use an analogy about a gym membership, right? If you give somebody a gym membership and they're not motivated to work out and get better anyway, they're not going to use it. So it doesn't matter how many other resources you're putting out there. If somebody's just not motivated, it's not going to have an effect, um, which again comes back to those friction points. So hopefully the things like telemedicine will encourage people to get more into their own health. And we also hear the phrase a lot about we don't have health care, we have sick care, meaning we tend to treat people after something has already occurred. We would like to have more preventative measures going on. I am hopeful that we can reference back to this situation, especially depending on if there is fallout with the stopping of elective surgeries right now and then other people's just general visits. I know that cardiologists in particular is one that I've seen there calling out that this could be an issue for them not seeing their patients regularly, that, that other issues could crop up. So hopefully that is something else that we take from this that, yeah, let's get to more focus on preventative care so that we don't have major issues going on. Yeah, that issue of preventative care is, I think, is very important because you wonder if the reduction, you know, for a certain amount of time, depending on how long we have restrictions on preventative care, what's going to happen over the next 18 months to two years because of that reduction in the availability of preventative care for several weeks, a couple months, we don't really know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And hopefully <laughs> there won't be major, major issues coming from it. But I'm hopeful also that it stays in the forefront so that 
people are taking advantage of, of that and we're not just treating people after the fact. Something else even referencing back to Medicaid that I have seen, there's some pretty wild stories of creative ways to get people to stop just running to the ER all the time. <laughs> For example, we, we even had having a nurse essentially like camp out because there was a frequent flyer just going there and going there and going there and saying, hey, did you know you're part of our program? And did you know that we have these other services that we probably could help you with rather than you know just going directly to the ER and, and getting there? And something else that hopefully will get better in the future uh, as far as access especially again in the Medicaid world, it's hard to locate people for various reasons. And when we were trying to get to the people so that you could actually try to get them healthier and treat them, one, one health plan, it was not ours, said that they got a list of pizza orders because the addresses that people were giving for their ordered pizza was more reliable than what the government actually had on file for these folks. Oh my goodness. <laughs> to, to actually, I'm not entirely surprised, but wow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, there's some creative things there going on. But again, with everything else being in the forefront, hopefully it's something that the general public can reference to, to say, hey, we did have some scares just in the capacity of healthcare when COVID hit. So again, let's do some of this preventative stuff and save the hospitals for the more extreme cases and what's going on. So that's another way to do our part. Oh, sure. I, I do hope this does raise awareness of the importance of preventative care and also the fact that it really is an investment, um, not only in an individual's health, but when you look at it from the healthcare industry perspective, there it usually is tied to uh, better cost outcomes for insurers as well if they keep people healthy and prevent a major illness. And another big buzzword that I don't necessarily have an opinion yet as to how prevalent it's going to be, but social determinants of health. And if people are unfamiliar with that term, basically it's extending what we think of in traditional healthcare out to a more broad view of somebody's day-to-day -day life. The most basic example would be food insecurity. And the idea is if I don't know where my next meal is coming from, I am certainly not going to be prioritizing managing my diabetes, let's say. Um, so mm. the idea is connecting somebody in that situation with a food source, whether it's food bank or whatever it happens to be, to take care of that part so that they're no longer focused on that immediate need and then can also manage maybe other issues that are going on with their health. It's definitely something that's really taking root right now. There are companies that are starting to make those connections. But again, I'll go back to my gym membership example I'm not sure at least yet how well that's going to work as far as leading a horse to water, but will they drink <laughs> as far as using those resources? Because they are available. Yeah, That's not my space to know how well communicated it is to the general public of the availability of the options. But as of now, if we're saying there needs to be an intermediary to get people to take advantage of these things, then we're assuming that the communication up to this point hasn't been good. If that's the case, then hopefully it'll help. If not, I'm not sure how far along uh, that focus on social determinants is going to be. Yeah. It, you know, motivation is an interesting topic to try to figure out how to get people to pay attention to what's really important to them and their health and their well-being. Um, and, that, and some of this is just human nature stuff, I suppose. But mm -hmm. but you're right. It's figuring out how to communicate to people so they understand the importance of prioritizing 
preventative care, in different you know aspects of things they can do to preserve their health uh, in the long term. Really, that's important. I also will be curious to see what happens with the healthcare job market. So, of course, right now we are seeing unprecedented amounts of people being laid off and not having a whole lot of options at the moment. And even before all this had occurred, healthcare has continually had a need for employees. And that's just being exacerbated at the moment. And I would imagine would probably continue to be for some time afterwards. So I wonder as other industries start to shift a main example, of course, would be we know there's self-checkouts, right, at a grocery store or at Walmart, wherever. Are we going to have some permanent fixture of self-checkouts or otherwise automating things that maybe there's less people that it takes to run one of these places and there's other industries that need more of a human touch? And healthcare, in my mind, is one of the major ones. Mm, yes. So- I'm wondering if we will actually start to see people finally look more at healthcare as a career opportunity as some of the other things become uh, less people centric. And of course, we saw that in the last downturn that unfortunately, (laughs) when a company finds efficiencies, history shows that they're not really that apt to go back to whatever the status quo was beforehand. They're going to keep that efficiency even when the downturn is gone. So I think that's something else people just need to keep in mind once we come out of this and turning towards the economy here a little bit, um, what that might mean for their shift. And like I said, sort of connecting that to healthcare, I'm thinking and hoping just based on what I see that uh, we might get a little bit of an influx of eligible workers to see that as a new career path. Yeah, it's it's a meaningful career. It's an important career. And to be honest, we need more people kind of to to enter healthcare with different ideas, different mm-hmm. perspectives to come up with uh, novel solutions to, to honestly disrupt the healthcare system because it is definitely ripe for disruption. It is. And another phrase that I use a lot when talking about data and just like the social determinants is a hot item right now. And like I said, I use the term big data or big health is a very hot phrase to use. But I'll say, make no mistake, it's still a work in progress for any company. Because if it wasn't, we'd already be talking about a company that's the Amazon of the healthcare industry. (laughs) And and that has, heck, Amazon's even thrown their hat in. It's been a while, at least from what I've read, that you've heard anything about the venture that they entered into trying to figure out their employee healthcare. So I can only imagine that means they've even hit some of the roadblocks. So for those that like a challenge out there, know that Yes, the industry is definitely right out there for somebody to come in and come come up with some really big innovations, especially even just in the data world and predicting these are the data points that we're seeing. Here's what the person would be at risk for down the line, and hopefully we can get out ahead of it. So by all means, uh, all ideas are welcome. That's right. Yeah, that's meaningful work. And and I was going to say, don't even get me started on uh, the history of electronic health records, because that could 
that's a complicated history. And I think that was one of the things that kind of drew in your your Amazons, your Googles, your Apples, when they said, I want to be a part of this healthcare conversation, because they recognized the opportunity. They knew whoever was able to kind of solve the problems that you're talking about. So predictive healthcare, understanding or getting better data behind mm-hmm what really works or where investments should really happen in relation to thinking about public health is huge opportunities, uh, but the complexity is ridiculously high. And on top of that, here, especially in the United States, healthcare is a highly politicized issue, whether it should be or not. Yeah, absolutely. And going in deep, here's an example uh, that I had when speaking with some office managers understand their perspective of some of the contracts that they have. Something that comes up a lot with the idea that you're going to get to a outcomes-based model, which is something else for people in the industry, you hear that quite a bit that, hey, if this person costs $100, if you can get it down to $80, then you're going to see a increase in pay by that $20 and however that math ends up working out. I always understood that from the government carrier side, but really have never been directly on the doctor's side of it. So when I was speaking with a couple different managers, they explained that they have no way to calculate that on their own. And I said, really, why is that? And he said, well, because we're dealing with all these different payers, whether it's a commercial payer, whether it's a government healthcare payer, and all the different companies that are out there, we don't know what all is coming in to create the baseline and what the final result is. So I said, oh, you're completely on the hook based on what the health insurer comes back and says your performance was. And he said more or less, yes, (laughs) which is not good. Of course, Uh, I wouldn't want to be in that situation to say, oh, you over here that's creating the contract and you're going to be the one that tells me whether or not I met it or not. And I just have to trust that. <laughs> that, that. And that's even just one example that I had come across that makes some difficulty in really getting to an outcomes-based system. And of course, just all the entities. We hear it all the time. Like you said, the political back and forth that can't seem to quite work together to get to a final model. Yeah, it's um, it's tough. It's challenging. It's complicated. I think there's a lot of people who have very good intentions and get into healthcare for very noble reasons um, and realize that the problems are just extremely difficult to solve. That's why it's a great industry to think about getting into if you want to make a difference and you're serious about it and you're willing to take some level of risk in order to kind of shake up the system and try try new ideas wherever you can. Because um, we we need we need better solutions to big problems. Yeah, that phrase of fail fast, which I think you hear a lot in the technology industry, is something that healthcare companies probably need to embrace. <laughs> that uh, at this point you need to think outside of the box, go for it, and don't get so married to a particular idea that you can't shift to a new idea um, because. It could just yeah further exacerbate the problem. So yeah, as, as much as fail fast can be the mantra that healthcare companies stick with, I think all the better for innovation. Totally. And I do think you have to mine out those opportunities where they can fail fast safely, because obviously it's a regulated industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're dealing with people's health or people's lives, there are 
certain things that you have to be very cautious about. However, when you're talking about the ability to have better data and be able to leverage that data to make better healthcare decisions for people and focus on the benefit of individual health and public health and more effective access to care, I feel like a lot of the other issues I don't know. Maybe in my optimistic mind, other things start to fall in line. It's it's just an, it's just a super complicated issue. Yeah, and you know maybe even circling this back to what we're having to do with COVID now and where we go in the future. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. That's been guidance before. Yeah. What's been going on now, um, and hopefully it sticks. Maybe a little bit better again something you can just reference. Hey, remember when we were going through this lockdown and it was very important? It's still important. And again, the flu, which is still out there. And if you really break that down, what we're saying in that case with the statistics and the mortality rate of the flu, we as a society did come up with what we thought at the time was an acceptable risk in order to get on with our daily lives. So Let's maybe take to heart some of the things that we know could tamp down even the flu or fill in the blank other diseases or so on to be more mindful of the more vulnerable population and and keep these things down. And if we can sort of reference those two points, it also brings to the fact that, you know what, there are people somewhere that do have to do those kinds of considerations of what risk are we talking about as far as how contagious mortality rate and the effects from economy and so on and so forth. Again, going back to the cardiology example, uh, in my podcast, I am going to be posting an episode that I did with a cardiologist. And of course he points out, yes, those rates have gone down as far as total death rates, but it is still, if not the, certainly in the top two uh, leading causes of death uh, is heart disease and we don't want to, you know, lose sight of, you know, these, these other things that are going on. Like you don't necessarily hear about that every day because it's, it's kind of been baked into the cake. We almost gotten, I hate to say gotten used to it, but it's been a known thing long enough that people aren't as freaked out as what we're seeing, you know, with COVID and so on. So again, just that mindfulness that, Hey, these things are out there too. So once we're through this, let's not just lose all of our lessons learned. Hey, what what else can we do for these other things that have historically been leading causes of death? Absolutely. Yeah, so important. And I got to say, a few minutes ago, you mentioned something that I have completely failed at. And that is not touching my face. Yeah, (laughs) me too. (laughs) I never knew how much I touched my face until now. Yeah, and, you know, who knows, maybe a million dollar idea is some sort of, I don't know, spray or something. Maybe maybe you dip your fingers in apple cider vinegar or something. Yeah, that's, that's like the things we, we put on our kids' fingers so they don't chew on their fingers. Right? Yeah, fingernail. <laughs> exactly. I uh, was just on a WebEx meeting just for day job. And of course, you see yourself. And yeah, every single time my hand starts to come up to my face. I like put it back down and you know, there's something to be said for that. It's having a mirror right there and you don't want everybody else to see you doing these things. I mean, it's kind of akin to one of the first presidential updates. This was early on, you know, they're getting off the podium and shaking hands and right after they said, don't do these things. And it's like, 
yeah, come on, listen to what you're saying. So same thing for the rest of us, right? Like, oh man, I'm hyper aware of what I'm doing now. Oh my gosh, it's so true. Yeah, all the Zoom, I got, yeah, go to the Zoom meeting thing because all of the Zoom meetings I have now, I mean, I've had Zoom meetings in the past. It's not like this is a new thing for me, but now I'm doing a lot more of them. So I have a hard time having my picture on the screen as often as it is because it's highly distracting to me. And so I have to figure out how to hide it or how to put it to the side. You know, it's just little things like that. It's just so funny that never, I never really thought about it much before. And now it's really kind of come to the forefront. But I also have to say, I'm really glad at this point in time that we have virtual tools like Zoom, because if we didn't, I think it would be much more difficult for us to connect to one another effectively. Yeah, totally agree. And something else that is part of my day job, I guess for about 18 months now, I am a work from home employee. And so for my day to day, there hasn't really been much of a shift. Again, A, because I'm in healthcare and the services that we're providing are absolutely essential. So I have not seen the major layoffs that other industries have so far. And then and I'm already from home. I've already been set up to do my job and be ready to go. So I've been a proponent of the tools that make it available to work remotely, limit travel, um, any of the things that now are a requirement for some time. I've even heard for travel the suggestion that by and large, unless you are needing to build a relationship with somebody new, whether that's a new sale for a new client that you're trying to build a rapport with, or just you start a new job or new staff, something like that. So you can get to know people on a little bit of a personal level. But after that point, many, many meetings can be held virtually. There are a lot of tools out there, even whiteboards that you can use. For example, I think of a lot of kickoff meetings, you got the big whiteboard and you're doing your workflows and figuring out where your steps are going to be and so on. There's some pretty good tools out there that you can do even that kind of thing virtually. And like you said, even though I don't know anybody that really likes to look at themselves on a webcam, (laughs) it does help a little bit to help form some of that connection. And I'll say for me, maybe the podcast, one extra benefit is getting a little more used to seeing myself or hearing myself (laughs) in that way more than my colleagues. But uh, I do think that we're going to see more and more of that as we get into the, quote, new normal to continue to be as safe as we possibly can. And I think that's a good thing. You know, we hear a lot about flexibility at work. Um, I, I read something a while ago as well that said people that have perceived flexibility are significantly less apt to look for a different job and are showing very much higher scores in job satisfaction. So that's another benefit, I think, from the remote work is if you're in a really big city, you just bought yourself two hours in commute time, you know, to and from work potentially that can aid in your flexibility and able to do your job. One other thing that I think about that I don't think gets pointed out for just work from home in general is For smaller companies who may not have locations all over the country that they can get people to relocate to or just have a bigger pool of candidates uh, when they're looking for talent is it should make it easier for you to basically cast a wider net 
Um, if you're not requiring somebody to relocate, then you can still have a national search and get the best candidate for the job without that potential sticking point of somebody having to relocate for it. So I think even from that standpoint, small businesses could get a little bit of an advantage there in, again, just not having to limit their search based on wherever they are centrally located. Oh, yeah. And I think there's also another benefit, access to jobs for people who are disabled. So um, there's going to be a lot better awareness for the fact that people can do a multitude of jobs from home if travel is difficult for them or going to an office is difficult to them. So I'm hoping to see that as well. That is a great point. I hadn't even necessarily considered that. But yeah, and then that, of course, translates as well to what will happen for commercial real estate. Uh, Will businesses say, hey, we've still been productive? And that remains to be seen. I've also been reading that companies are looking very closely at the productivity of their staff that has not been remote traditionally, and even suggestions that they're watching their internet use to see how much are they going on their personal email, how much are they going on Facebook during work hours, assuming their overall productivity stays relatively the same, or maybe even better, then you look at the costs of commercial real estate and could come down. And yeah, even bridging that to disabled folks, they already have all the accommodations ready to go at home. And depending on whatever they would have to do for their commute and so on. Yeah, all the better for for both sides, I think. So that that definitely could be an advantage. Yeah, I think so. I, I do hope to see that after we come out of all of this. I think that well, I'm hoping that enough people are collecting a good amount of information and data uh, in order to inform decisions in the future about things like work and business operations, you know, and how we all live and how we all connect to one another and the importance of that connection. Yeah. And I, if I can really be a futurist here, (laughs) something that I daydream about is we've seen some of the reports of the carbon footprint really going down because of less air travel, less car travel, and so on, which is terrific. And certainly there have been articles written that say, maybe we're getting to see a little bit of the path forward so that it's a hard lesson learned with what we're going through right now, but maybe it's forced some of the decisions that need to be made when we're talking about the environment and global warming. I have heard somewhere, I wish I could quote the source so people don't think I'm completely crazy when I say this, but it was some crazy number of trees to be planted, like a trillion, which of course, yeah, how are you going to do a trillion trees? So my daydream is... Yeah, if we can limit these commercial buildings and we really are able to work from home so much more, let's take these massive parking lots and these things. And yeah, we may not get to a trillion, but you know, what can we do to sort of get them back to a, a more green environment? And you're saving a whole lot more space in commercial real estate. You don't necessarily need to repurpose these buildings for some other economical purpose. Maybe there is something environmentally that can be done with these spaces. I even wonder that this could maybe uh, be too far, but what's going to happen with colleges? Uh, you know, as we figure out what works mobile wise. And when I got my master's, I made sure that I did an online program that was through a brick and mortar school because this was enough years ago that there was still a little bit of a stigma, you know, about doing uh, an online course. Well, gosh. With what we have now, that stigma, if there was one anymore, has got to be 
just completely blown away, I would imagine, out of necessity, if nothing else. Um, and, and similar, I mean, you're talking about major, major acreage for the traditional college campus. And of course, we know all the issues that people are dealing with as far as student debt. And some of that even comes with paying for your dorm and your food and stuff like that, not just the classes itself. So another way that maybe you can kill two birds with one stone that college costs maybe could come down because you don't have to be living on campus and doing the dorm and doing the rest of that. And also there's a lot of space to do other things with that land. So, so that's something I'm hoping that also comes out of all this. Yeah, that's interesting. On that point of college, I have a college student too, and he is e-learning from home right now. He's mm-hmm. not a big fan of the e-learning. He likes to be in class in person, but he's also a science guy. So he likes the labs and things like that. He can't really do very effectively um, over a you know, a Zoom call or whatnot. Right. But what's really interesting is before the pandemic, over the last couple of years, college enrollment rates have actually decreased. And now you start to wonder if this starts to impact decisions that people have over enrolling in the fall, because there's some level of question as to whether in-person classes will happen in the fall or not. Um, but I, yeah, it's the things I think about too, is like, what's, what is this going to do to higher learning? What kind of changes would we expect to see in um, enrollment rates in the access to education, which again, uh, higher access to education is always a good thing, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to, things to think about. Yeah. And also a good, a good point about the type of major you're going through. So, right. If you're science major or chemistry major and you need to have that interaction to go through certain experiments and things like that. That's hard to do through uh, e-learning. But of course, where my mind is for what I do day to day of coding, data mining, things like that, um, you know, presumably you could have a more effective model. So it may also even force some of the colleges, while it seems like to me uh, that they are somewhat clamoring, at least the smaller schools for Students, like you said, enrollments have definitely been down. Maybe they will have to become a little more hyper-focused on what types of degrees they have. And then again, if they can do them more as an e-learning, great. Maybe that becomes their model. Um, if they can't, then they understand you know, what they are focused on and, and really, really get focused on those particular majors, which would also, I think, make it even easier for students to figure out where they want to go and what they're trying to focus on, or even makes them realize they're not ready to make the decision about the degree. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, there's, there's some other options at that point, because I think definitely we hear the story that you, you go because that's just the thing you're supposed to do. Right. Uh, and then you don't have any idea what you want to do at best, maybe the first couple of years, and then you figure it out at worst, of course, you get a degree and then you realize it wasn't what you wanted to do. So yeah, yeah maybe some of those things will fall into place as well. Absolutely. But hey, I would love to shift gears for a second because you have a pretty interesting podcast, Suburban Folk, where you talk to people about a lot of everyday stuff that they deal with in their homes and in their world and their lives. I'd love to learn more about that. Sure. And maybe history of the podcast for its current iteration. I really got into podcasting for parenting advice, meaning just looking for other podcasts. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what I found were mostly 
geared towards mothers. Not to say there aren't dad podcasts right. out there. I just, I guess, was bad at searching <laughs> and I didn't really find them. So that was my first thought was, hey, I'd be interested to see how other people view certain situations with parenting and tips and tricks because my kids are three and five. So certainly we're still in the beginning stages of <laughs> challenges that'll come up and ways to deal with them and things like that. Um, I was nervous that I would run out of content <laughs> relatively quickly. So I was like, you know, I don't necessarily need to do just dads. That's where the folk part came in. Let's do everybody, uh, not just the guys in the spe spectrum. And then also there are some other topics that I just enjoy, whether it's offering my knowledge or learning more myself, in particular, personal finance. I seem to be an anomaly on that one because in my day-to-day -day life, when I'll talk about things like 401ks, IRAs, all that kind of stuff, people just sort of look at me like I'm crazy. And why would they want to talk about that? And I, I look the other way when people will just say they sort of plug and play their 401k of, yeah, it's going into this thing. And I don't really ever look at it. And I'm like, oh, you're kidding me. So um, I, I like to talk about the personal finance. Again, everybody has to be able to deal with it uh, in one way or another. So it's a universal topic. And then again, rounding out for suburbanites, there are other certain things you have to deal with, like home improvement. It's one that I get into when I can kind of curse the fact that I started a project, but then make my way through it and afterwards say, hey, this was pretty cool. And now I've learned a new skill. So I think that's something else that's important. And then the last two, technically, you don't have to deal with as a suburbanite. Uh, but in my opinion, you should. One, health and fitness. Uh, so really have a focus on what kind of workout regimens are out there, ways to do things. And then also, I'm a bit illiterate when it comes to dieting and what the options are out there. So I'm definitely learning in that front when I bring people on. And then the last one is travel. Of course, you don't necessarily have to travel. I am a big, big proponent of getting out, seeing the world. Again, right now, not the best topic <laughs> to, to go on right. because uh, people aren't going anywhere and it really remains to be seen what that's going to look like once we start to lift some of the lockdowns. But from my perspective, if anybody talks about where to spend their money and so on, I've heard the phrase that there is less buyer's remorse with experiential purchases, i.e. traveling or other events and things like that, as compared to buying stuff. So I totally agree with that. And that's why I have a focus on that as well, because I really think that People should get out and do what they can for travel, for experiencing other cultures, getting a perspective of what your day-to-day -day life is like, and just having some time to reflect on, are you doing the things you should be doing and how do other people live and so on. So that's kind of how the podcast has evolved the way it's been. And I've been really happy with the types of guests that I've been able to get on, both for my own learning, as well as, again, for the audience to pick up some new things that they can do in their day-to-day -day life. And the last thing I'll say is I wanted to put the suburban part on it because A, like I said, anybody living in suburbia for the most part is going to have to deal with most of these issues. But also I always feel like people bag on suburbanites of, okay, they're in their cookie cutter homes and they're just boring and they make do with driving their kids to soccer and that's all they do and then go home and watch Netflix or whatever it happens to be. So <laughs> I'm trying to buck that a little bit by saying, no, we've got other things going on. There's other exciting things in life and it's not just this cookie cutter group of people that are washing their cars on weekends.
Yeah. I think it's good to kind of, yeah, buck assumptions that we make about different groups of people in general, because usually the assumptions are wrong or incomplete. So yeah, maybe I might consider myself a suburbanite. I kind of grew up a suburbanite. And even though I was a little bit outside of town growing up, so I was lucky enough to have a little bit of rural life along with suburban life. But, you know, yeah, maybe we do kind of wash our cars and go to soccer and watch Netflix. But we have other things going on in life. We have challenges. We have fun things. We have difficulties just like other people. But I think one of the things that I appreciate is I am vastly appreciative um, and grateful for the opportunity to be in a middle class situation and uh, do everything that I can to give back to other people that have more challenging circumstances than I do. Uh, yeah, that's for sure. And to your point, like the topics that I hit are, of course, nearly universal to anybody, regardless of where they're living. Um, yeah. So I'm hopeful that anybody that tunes into the episodes, like I said, in particular, the personal finance ones, mm. um, because the story that I tell is the first time that I got a review from actually another show that that's their format. They review other podcasts. And they were very positive about the episodes they listened to and said, yep, I can see a lot of the information that's good here. And when they hit the personal finance was the one guy said, oh, the note I put was, sounds like he knows what he's talking about a little bit over my head. So I actually, when I did a New Year's resolution episode, I mentioned that to say, I get it. It's not really the most exciting topic for a lot of people that they want to get into. However, <laughs> I really encourage people to not just have your eyes glaze over and say, oh, I don't need to know about this um, because it, it is really, really important stuff. Again, when we see the swings that we're seeing right now economically. Um, I know I've talked to my financial planner more in the last <laughs> two, two to three months than I had in a while just trying to figure things out. And also, I want to know what he is saying. I don't just want him to say, oh, I put your money somewhere and that's it. There are people that are interested in that, but I do think that it's worth learning that kind of information. And to your point about being thankful that, yeah, suburbia equals being at least middle class, potentially above, what can you do to help other people either reach that or reach above and so on? And regardless of what your income happens to be, if you can be a smart saver and understand some of the ways you can do these things, it equals freedom. And actually, I'm stealing something that my financial advisor talks about a lot. Of, yeah. of course, when you hear finance and so on, you just say that equals how much money you have. Well, okay, fine. But I think most people that you talk to that even have a lot of money, it's not the money they value. It's the freedom that it affords them to do the things that they want to do um, and be able to shift different interests and so on. So hopefully being able to at least present some tools that gets somebody to some version of that where they have a little bit more freedom to figure out whatever else they want to do, um, I think is great. And really, anytime I hear that somebody's <laughs> actually been able to take some of what I've suggested and run with it is certainly the most gratifying part. Oh, yeah, it's, it's really important. And I'll say this for me personally, my sister's a CPA, my husband's a finance guy, me, 
I back away and shy away from it. I won't look at my 401k right now because I'm scared what it looks like. This like that's like the the nightmare. That's like the the scary movie that I don't want to yeah. watch is my 401k right now. <laughs> but the reason I say that is because what you're doing in relation to talking about the importance of paying attention to your personal finances is really important. And I, you know, know and recognize that I need to do a better job of it. I'm lucky I have people around me that are knowledgeable and savvy in that area that I can leverage to kind of help me navigate that. But I look at other shiny objects and squirrels and chase them instead. But I do need to pay better attention uh, to things like personal finances because it's tremendously important, especially when we go through difficult times like we're going through right now. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that is where the bridge is over to why I also do the health and fitness part of it, because I am certainly very aware of my own financial situation. And like you said, I'm not looking at my 401k right now either. <laughs> it's just yeah. why give yourself that uh, shock to the heart when you're not going to move your money or at least, well, I'll say that for people listening, please talk to some sort of a financial professional if you're really getting scared enough that you think you're going to pull your money out because finance 101 says that's where you're really going to lose a lot of money if you just get that scared and so on. But uh, going over to the health piece, don't get so stressed out about your job or about finances or whatever else is going on that you lose focus on yourself from that standpoint as far as um, just keeping your body maintained. Uh, and, and that can, of course, mean different things to different people. I actually started my health shows with a triathlon show because I am a uh, long distance runner is my main activity. And I knew at some point my joints probably weren't going to hold up <laughs> for that over the long term. So, hey, can I supplement with some biking and swimming and so on? Um, but I also recognize starting with those episodes that I also need to do some just basic gym uh, regimens for people that certainly aren't going to go and run major amounts of miles and certainly aren't going to go and try and do a triathlon and so on. But trying to also reiterate the point that if your job or something else that is in your daily life is forcing you to stress eat or not get exercise, whatever else it happens to be at that may be even being at best. And of course, at worst, that you are having to go seek medical treatment or something like that. Like, literally, that's the definition of something not being worth it, <laughs> um, whatever that thing happens to be. Um, so that, that that's the other balance that I try to strike there of knowledge is power for your financial piece. But also, of course, it is not everything by a long shot. <laughs> and yeah, totally. without your health, uh, you'll find that very, very quickly. And hopefully, again, for people that aren't really gym rats or found their own regimen. I think that's something else that's very gratifying just to get them thinking, if nothing else, uh, about ways that they can improve their health and other things that they can do without using that dreaded word of diet and making it too restrictive. <laughs> that, again, that can be a scary word. Oh, yeah. So I know earlier in the conversation, we talked a lot about things you're optimistic for in the future. Is there anything that concerns you about the future? It may just be because of the current moment, but continued automation, I think, is an issue. I've read a couple different books about like the second industrial age and so on. And of course, the fear is that with every innovation we've seen up to this point, relatively speaking, 
jobs that were lost due to automation have been replaced with new technical jobs or other things that you can do. So, hey, if a machine took your job in a factory, then hey, at least you can learn to fix that machine and move on to the next thing and so on. And of course, when you read these ones that are really future looking is, are you ever going to get to the point where the machine is taking over the job and continuing the analogy, oh, by the way, there's a machine behind it that can fix the machine. <laughs> you know, there's just not a job that gets replaced uh, by a human somewhere down the line. And just like we're talking about with the travel and ways to potentially mitigate diseases that have been here for a while, it's potential that we have seen a window into what that could look like as far as what's truly an essential function uh, and then also what could end up being automated. I'll go back to what I mentioned before. Let's be honest with ourselves. Most companies, not all, but most companies, when they find an efficiency, they're not going to revert back to whatever was less efficient just because they got more money and all of a sudden they want to be more altruistic to the general public. So that that is the thing that I think is the scariest to me. And uh, I also joke, I, I stay away from politics as much as I possibly can, certainly when it's in a public forum like this. But for those that recall Andrew Yang, his big platform was the universal basic income, $1,000 for everybody a month. And basically that's what he was saying is, I think it's coming faster than people realize. And once you get these automated things, I think the one he would point to is trucking, right? I mean, we all watch Tesla and these other companies getting to self-driving cars. And of course, that next step is a self-driving truck. And there are a lot of people, especially in rural America, that they're truck drivers. Um, so what happens to those people after the fact? Uh, do they have to relocate one of those new jobs? Um, so that, that I think right this second is what makes me probably the most nervous is what is that shift going to look like and are we, especially in the US where we are workaholics compared to the rest of the world. Again, I just did a show with um, a travel agency expert out of Australia and she pointed out a couple different times, you guys get about two weeks of vacation. We get five mandatory <laughs> minimum and, and potentially even more. So the US may really have some struggles with slowing down and figuring out what that new model's going to look like. And I think I fall a bit on the side of it's going to come sooner than we think. I won't say how soon, but I think we will be a little less prepared for that new future than uh, what we presumably should be. Right. And all the more reason for everyone who is listening to get involved in helping to shape the future. So Greg Rotersheimer, this has been a great conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. I've had a lot of fun. And uh, again, I appreciate you having me on. You bet. Thank you so much. Greg has found meaning in his healthcare career and tremendous interest in topics ranging from finance to travel and from home improvement to the environment. He also delves into his suburban experience and through his Suburban Folk podcast takes others on that journey with him. This deep dive into suburban life tells a story of roughly half of Americans. 
It's a slice of America that is, by average, becoming older and more diverse over time. You might also be surprised to learn that although our view of suburbia typically focuses squarely on the middle class, the suburbs are home to roughly half of Americans who are living in poverty. So, the slice of America that surround our urban centers are, more and more, broadening their representation of the U.S. population. In future episodes, I hope to also explore the experience of people living in cities, as well as those living in rural areas. It is through not one lens, but a collection of lenses, that we will be able to envision a better future. Although our country and our world have very large problems to address, the day-to-day issues with which we all face will persist, and we will navigate each 401k and each home improvement project as we work together to shape our future. So, go on. Go help shape the future. To learn more about Greg's work, visit roadyconsulting.com. That's R-O-E-D-Y consulting.com. You can also check out his podcast, Suburban Folk, at suburbanfolk.com. I am Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Music by Ryan Sullivan, Rebecca Scott, and Victoria Scott. Credits and resources from this episode can be found in the episode notes at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.